if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been working through this partial part of the chapter just for a few, few weeks, five weeks. This is the fifth week, and, and we're going to finish today, Lord willing. And so it's been a while since we've read the whole verses that we've been focused on, so we'll, we'll just begin that way. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, uh, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Amen. Let's pray together as we work through those last three attributes. Father, thank you that you love lost, depraved, hell-worthy sinners. And in light of this sermon, may you be honored and praised and esteemed as your self-disclosure here in these verses deserves. And please, God, keep moving us towards this love. Help me to speak about it and everyone to listen that we all might hear your voice and obey you and worship you to the praise of your glory, Father. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Well, if I had to put in one sentence the remarks which many of you have made in light of these sermons on love as it's described here, I would say it would be something similar to what John Newton said. Uh, John Newton, the writer of, of the hymn Amazing Grace, said before his death, he said that although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. And here's a sentence. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. So after these sermons on love, we all have the opportunity to say, I know two things very well now, that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And you can't imagine how important it is that we respond this way in light of what we've been learning. So do you remember the quote we said from a few weeks ago? It is the people who have said the most terrible things about themselves as they are by nature, who rejoice most in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul could say in 1 Timothy 1.15, he is the worst of all sinners. That's why he could say in Romans 7, wretched man that I am. It is those who have said those things who have been able to say, beautiful, bountiful grace in thee is found, to quote the hymn. So in light of this, repentance is so essential here if we have any hope to love the way that we're called to love. And that was certainly the lesson that the Corinthian church needed because they were just so sure of themselves in the worst of ways. You see, it seemed like the Corinthians were always trying to make satisfaction with God through their works or through their spiritual experiences, which blinded them as it inevitably will to the true nature and the true depth of their sins, even as they kept pointing out the sins of others. 
So they would boast, we are a loving church. But clearly, they were not. Therefore, these words from God through Paul on love were meant to humble them in a carefully loving way. Because repentance to God and grace from God, that is the only way that we have real power from God. That is ultimately our only hope of getting this love right. In other words, two things. In the church, because remember, this was written to a church. In the church, we all need to be on the receiving end of the love that I just read from. And we will all need to be on the giving end of that love that we just read from. Receiving end, because we will blow it. And on the giving end, because others will too. And if the best we can do, if the best we can do is, is apply some misguided zeal without knowledge, which is what the Pharisees of Jesus' day and Paul's day did, then I promise you, we will drift away from the love of Christ. We will drift away from the love of Christ. So a long time ago, and it's getting longer year by year, we used to sing this song at the church that I served before this one. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And we will guard each one's dignity. And we will save each one's pride. And they will know that we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. Because every other gift will fade away. Verse 9, every other gift has some kind of incompleteness in it. But not love. Okay, this is the 13th characteristic of love. If you see this in verse 7, love always hopes. Now, hope is a great word. Outside the Bible, the word hope is little more than wishful thinking. So the rhythm of my life now, in the beginning of the new year, I always tell our grown-up children who don't live at home anymore, I say to them, I hope we'll be able to see you Thanksgiving, Christmas, summertime, birthday, flag day, Cinco de Mayo, Tuesday. I hope... I hope. This hope is not that. This hope has a square belief in all the promises of God. And so they take God at his word and they're waiting with certainty, with certainty that with what God has said will be fulfilled. So this is not like some kind of like artificial projection. This is definitely not a positive attitude. This is something that God produces in us. And therefore this love, this love always have Hopes begins to be our looking glass to we we see everything this way. We see people this way, we see ourselves this way, we see God this way, we see his church this way. In order that hope is like like a song that just keeps getting played and replayed in your mind. Now, after all that, here's the big question. Are you kidding me with this hope stuff? <laughs> Have you seen the world? Do, do you read the newspapers and social media? Hello? <laughs> Have you seen my life? Have you seen my children, my marriage, my longing for a lover that has not been satisfied? Have you seen the church? Hope? Really? Surely the kind of love always hopes thing that Paul is describing here can't really go in the real world. I mean, it kind of feels good on Sunday but it doesn't have any real power on Monday. And Joe, I, I think that you, you, you sound like a fairyland man, right? 
You've been reading children's books way too much. Okay, here's my answer to that. And I want you to be patient with me. Because I can kind of see where people would say that. But, but I want to tell you that love can always hope. And the audacity of that answer can only come from God. Now, Paul, who wrote this, he knew plenty of doubt about disappointment. He knew plenty of pain. This is 2 Corinthians 11. This is Paul. I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was once pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've been in danger from the rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, danger from false believers. I've labored, toiled, often gone without sleep. I've known hunger, thirst, have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And so if your journey in in your life has been anything near that or less than that, okay, Paul would understand. But listen to what he says in Romans 5. We also glory in our sufferings that we just read because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, anyone want to guess? Hope. That's what it says. It goes on. And hope does not put us to shame. You see, you see, the end result of suffering for the Christian in light of the gospel is it will always produce more hope and not less hope. Why? This is the Bible. Same verse. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so this is what it means. Suffering is very real and it will happen and it'll probably hurt. But that produces perseverance, resolve, which produces character. And then hope, and hope will not let us down. Okay, how do we know that? Well, Paul says, because God's love has been poured out. And that word there, think of you standing under Niagara Falls and then the water that's coming down on you. That's the love of God. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That is a common Christian experience. In other words, God is love. And God loves you, Christian, and love is a verb for God. So this is the meat and drink of the word. God sends his love to us by his spirit through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And brings his love down to earth and floods our heart with an overwhelming, ginormous, if you would, sense of his love. So that we would know that we're loved by God. And the Holy Spirit then brings us, if you would, into this atmosphere of hope. Hope. And this is not just like metaphysical feelings. This is our reality. This is stout. So if you've never experienced this, I'm deeply sorry. But this is true. And so we build our life on this hope in Christ. Because for Christians, again, in our suffering, the floodgates are open wide for hope. They are not shut Christian suffering, the Bible says, brings more hope and not less hope. And that is why love always hopes. So, for example, when other Christians are the source of our sufferings, one of the things we simply say is, whatever you do to me, it's only going to make me love you more. It's only going to make me love you more. And hope knows that. All the promises of God are yes and amen, because that's hope. Promises assured, not in you, not in me Definitely not in our performance, but in hope. 
And you think about that, hope always argues, if you would, from, from the, the greater to the lesser. And this is what I mean. If God kept his oldest promise, which is our salvation, I mean, he made it in Genesis 3, but you could argue that he made it before time. If God kept his old, oldest promise to us, salvation, and that is our hope, Hope says that he'll keep all the other smaller promises, the lesser promises, just as well. Now, they might feel big to us, and I understand that. But they're not to God. I put in my notes, God's promises make me brave. God's promises make me brave and give me hope. And therefore, hope, love always hopes, is one of the distinctive marks of a mature Christian, right? Not never, 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 it's never, 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 no. Hope, hope, hope. Because our hope is never about what we can do, what we have done, or what we promise to do. It's not locked into the temperament of the world, its condition, the news cycles, monetary policy, who's holding office. Hope doesn't lean on that. Hope leans on the promises of God in Christ. And so God has locked himself into this divine quest that he will sustain all of his promises for his purposes, for our good, and for his glory. And you know, as you think about that, one of the unexpected mercies of pastoral ministry is people often confide in me some of their biggest hopes and dreams. It is is a privilege. It is humbling it's humbling that they even want, would, they would want to tell me those things. And for better or worse, my typical response after I thank them for sharing that with me, I can tell you what my response is not. I do not say, well, that'll never work. Or I don't say what the, the phrase that Lindsay's made up during the pandemic. So <laughs> I have to give you a little background quickly here. So she, she came up with this phrase, in this economy? So... <laughs> What I mean is, like, we say, we told Lindsay early on, hey, we're going to make sure you have X, Y, and Z, and she would respond in, in jest, in this economy? <laughs> hey, Lindsay, we're going to buy you dinner tonight, in this economy? So when people tell me their hopes and dreams, I don't say, in this economy? <laughs> what I usually say is, that is terrific, and I try to see what they're saying in my mind's eye. Why? Because love always hopes. Psalm 25.1. Those who hope in you, God, will never be put to shame. Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. Now a hymn. There is a hope that lifts my weary head. A consolation strong against despair that when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find my Savior there. Through present sufferings, future fears, he whispers courage in my ear. For I am safe in everlasting arms and those arms, they will lead me home. Now before we get to our next point, there's a a nice little saying that says every party has a pooper. That's why we invited you party pooper. So just in case, you know, you're that mythical party pooper. Uh, You're a never hoper. (laughs) I want you to consider Jesus Christ. Because he saw in people that which made him hope beyond all hope. So he saw the potential of some fishermen in Galilee. Who were they? He saw the possibility of a tax collector and some zealot. He saw the possibility of Mary Magdalene. 
he saw in the woman in the well, right? She had a horrible past. Her present was pretty terrible too. She saw, he saw in her the possibilities of evangelizing a whole town. John 4, 39, many of them would believe on Christ because of her testimony. See, he loved her and love always hopes and hope never disappoints. And what about Paul who was Saul? He was a bitter enemy of the church. Hope beyond all hope. He was out of his mind. That's how much he hated Christ and Christians. But he was made tool, a tool in the hand of his master. So there's a very old story. It's often told. It's beautiful. A doctor, it's ancient, in the ancient world, a doctor is speaking to his colleague in Latin as he's looking at this puddle of a man. The man was left for dead. He was a victim of injustice, blood everywhere. And in Latin, the doctor says, what shall we do with this worthless man? But to the surprise of the doctors, the half-dead man was able to say in perfect Latin, call no man worthless for whom Christ died. Love always hopes. And what kept the prodigal Son, the father of the prodigal son. What, why in the world was he looking for his son's return? I mean, why was he doing that? Why was he looking for his son? A long way off, the Bible says. Except that he anticipated that the son would come back. Because love, the father's love, always hopes. Now, I'm sure you might have had friends who say, you know, he just took all your money. And that was a lot of money. And kids today, and you know, it's been about 10 years But the father's response was, okay, 10 years is a long time, but it's not so long, is it? Is it? In light of eternity, is it? And you know, this could be the day. This could be the day that my son comes home and all those 10 years will seem like 10 minutes because my boy is home. Now, why is that so? Because love does not despair. Love always hopes. And that is the vivacious tenacity of the Christian love which comes from God, which means and guarantees that better days are coming. Better days are coming. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you would overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number 14, love always perseveres. Now, the word there for persevere is hypomino, and it's actually a military term, and it is humble, self-sacrificing endurance, all right? Humble, self-sacrificing endurance, and so it's a picture of a soldier who, when the battle is at its most difficult, they do not drop their weapons and leave. They pick them up and stay in battle. They persevere. So if you would, just for a little bit of fun, I want you to think of an Olympic weightlifter. And by the way, I, I, I Googled Russian Olympic weightlifters because they have some studs there in that country. But anyway, so an Olympic weightlifter. So they grab the chalk, they rub their hands, they put their hands on the bell, the barbell, and they take a deep breath, and there's, what, 250 kilos, 551 pounds. He jerks the bar up. He screams, right? 
the bar, the bark is over his head. His arms are shaking, his legs are shaking, his face is shaking. Forgive me, a whole lot of shaking going on. <laughs> he holds the weight up. Green light. He throws the weight down. Success. Now, if you saw that and you didn't know about weight, you would say, well, what's the big deal? He held the bar over his head with some stuff on it. Now, if you said that, you'd be silly, right? Because what he did was remain under the bar with all that tremendous pressure of his weight, and he persevered. He persevered. And that is what God, through Paul, is saying about love. Love perseveres. Love can take incredibly difficult pressure. Pressure times, pressure situations, pressure people. So I read of a Christian husband who went to five different Christian counselors because his marriage was in trouble. And so four of the five, they analyzed him and they did good things. They talked about his past. They asked about what happened to him and they had him take a temperament test and things like that. All very useful. However, one of the five in the course of the session just said this. Would you please, would you please repeat your marriage vows that you said to your wife on your wedding day? And so he did. And so he got to the phrase, for better or worse, the counselor said, would you just stop right there? And so the guy stopped. The the counselor said, okay, what did you say before you said for better or for worse? And he said, well, I said, I promise to love you for better or worse. So the counselor said, okay, which one's happening right now? He said, worse. The counselor then said, okay, our session is over. Go home and live in that love. Well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) No. True story. The guy goes home, lives in that context, and his own words, okay? This counsel was used by God to turn it all around for myself and my wife, and God saved our marriage. Okay, why? Why? Because love always perseveres. Christian love in every one of its contexts, home, work, church, the public square, it endures. It won't quit. One of my favorite hymns has the line, even though you, God, you know all my ways, your love for me endures. And when I think about such things, it makes me love you more. So I have to ask you this. Why why do, do we find it so easy to give up on people, to give up on the unconverted, to give up on the church? Why? And I'm sure people can justify themselves and all those things. You know, they did this and they failed me and it's been so long and on and on. But, but that is true of all of us in some sense when it comes to our relationship with God. God endures all kinds of stuff from us every day. Things we don't even know that we do. And he endures not because of our performance. God, no. Thank you, Father, that you don't do that. 
but he endures because of the performance of Jesus Christ, our substitute. And love says, now you go and do likewise with people. Persevere with your brothers and and sisters in the church, in Christ, in the same way. A quote, a a person, excuse me, a person with an unhealthy understanding of Christian love can always convince themselves they're doing the right thing by not enduring in love. But there remains the possibility they are simply being captive to their own passions. Now, as you think about that in the context of the Corinthian church, is it any wonder that Paul just soaks this letter in Jesus Christ and him crucified? I mean, it's almost in every chapter to let them know that Jesus Christ took on the full wrath of God. And when he took on the full wrath of God on the cross, he didn't say, you know what, let's just stop this. They are not worth it. I am out of here. I'll leave them to to themselves. They made their bed. Now they are going to have to lie in it. No, what does he do? He lets the full weight of God's wrath and all our personal unrighteousness, he takes it in his body and he says to the end, it is finished. And then he dies because love endures. So if you would, Jesus Christ is that cosmic weight lifter and he lifts the full weight of the penalty of sin in his body. So if you don't think Jesus Christ loves you, I I pray that God gives you grace to know that is untrue. He loves his church. He loves every single church. So he loves you. He loves you personally, deeply, creatively, uniquely. And he's never going to stop loving you. Hebrews 12, 13. Now consider him, Jesus Christ, who persevered such opposition from sinners like you and me so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus, and you won't grow weary and lose heart. Finally, love never fails. So, so all these 14 characteristics of love, they culminate into that one little phrase there that there is an impossibility of love ever leading us astray. That love will never fail you. Love, like this, will never give you the wrong result. Now, again, we're going to have to remember the context. Chapter 13 is right in the middle of chapter, between chapters 14 and 12. Okay, what's going on in 12? Well, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. Okay, what's going on in chapter 14? Well, Paul is trying to teach them how some of those gifts need to function in the church. And what Paul does there is he contrasts the permanency of love against the temporal nature of the gifts. Okay, so the Corinthian church, they thought the gifts were the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. They're always talking about the gifts. Gifts, 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 gifts. And they thought that was real spirituality. Go perform. Wow, that is great. Do it again. Go perform. Wow, that's great. Do it again. But what Paul does is he shows them that those gifts, verse 9, there's an incompleteness in the gifts, particularly the ones that the Corinthians favored. So that love is the only thing that's going to last. Now, if you don't just, just understand that, the Corinthians would critique the gifts exercised in the church by others. How foolish. How unloving. The gifts, Paul already says, they're incomplete. But there is no incompleteness in love. Verse 8, love never fails. It is permanent. Now, again, think about that. 
Because what Paul is saying is when this, al- this love is applied, as he describes it there, it's never going to collapse. It's never going to fall apart. It's never going to fail you. It's never going to disappoint you. It's not going to slip up. It's not de- it's going to decay, which is the sense of the Greek word there for fail in verse 8. In other words, there's divine power in love. Again, a tenacity that love will never fail. Okay. So I've been reading a book for a while now, and it's by Susan Cain. And the title of the book is Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking. Now, it's been very helpful to me personally. And one of the chapters, she tells this story. It's a true story, believe it or not, of the Harvard School of Business. All right? So at the Harvard School of Business, there's a, there's a morning ritual that they're all required to do in the School of Business. And it's called the learning time. And so what happens is all the students come together and the professor gives them a case study, a true, real-life business scenario. So, you know, for example, a CEO of a company is going to add a new product line. Should he or should they not? And the question comes, if you were the CEO, what would you do? Okay, and then the exercise begins. And the students are asked to make a decision in the face, now listen carefully, of incomplete information. So they don't know the whole story. They don't know everything about everything in the context of that scenario. They don't have all the facts. And more often than not, in life, we will not have all the facts. And so the question comes, what would you do? Now, for that school, the exercise is there to promote the Harvard Business School's theology, if you would. And so they're like, let's be loud and let's be talkative and let's be assertive. You know, fake it till you make it kind of thing. Show them that you can take charge of the situation and make it all right. And so the students who just throw themselves in there, who speak forcefully, they are, and this is a quote now from the book, they are the players. They're the ones who receive the high marks. Okay, but here's the thing. In real life, okay, the exceptional business leaders, and this is what she said, the level five leaders, in other words, the guys and ladies who make more money for their companies, they are not forceful and they are not talkative. But they are, and I'm quoting here, humble and almost loving to a fault. In fact, this is another quote. Humble in manner, precise in speech, Deep in thought, strong in joy and love. Those are the most successful CEOs. So I want to say to you that even the secular world sees how powerful love is. Now, just if you would, take the leap with me here. Often in life, we do not know what to do. We do not know all the facts. We come up against hard situations, hard decisions, hard circumstances. What do we do? This is what Paul says. Love. Love. Okay, why? Because the one who always knows what to do, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, listen carefully, Colossians 2, 3, the one who in him alone is where we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there was not one decision that Jesus ever made that did not come as a result of his love for the Father and his love for this rebel world. 
I'm going to say that again. There was not one decision that Jesus made that didn't come out as a result of his love for the Father and his love for the rebel world. So what does Jesus do with his closest friends who grieve him and disappoint him, who betray him and deny him? What does he do? He loves them to the cross. What does Jesus do with our open rebellion and our private rebellion? He took it to the cross. He paid the cost. He loved the world so much that he gave his life to save those who would believe. And I want to ask you this question. Did his love fail you? Did his love fail you? No, because love is the greatest thing in the world. It is the greatest thing in the world. And loved ones, that is the same love which God has poured out into our hearts as a gift by the Holy Spirit. So I would just simply say, now go in the power of the Holy Spirit and love this way. And maybe if you need to, like I needed to, I wrote this out as a prayer and just asked all these 15 characteristics almost on a daily basis now. God, please. God, please. God, please. God, please. Why? Because love never fails. Let's pray together. And maybe we'll just take a moment just to think on these things. And then I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your love and your faithfulness for us in Christ. And please, God, we we need you to make us better lovers of others. That we would love them in whatever condition we find them. And knowing that that kind of love will never fail them. Help us to see hatred and arrogance only stirs up conflict that love covers every wrong. You set your love on us when we didn't deserve it. Please, God, give us grace to do that to others. And God, forgive us when we do not love as we are explained here too. And give us grace to let your love take over our lives, to take over your church, make it grow by your spirit, bringing fruit to eternal life. For Jesus' sake. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the abiding power of the Holy Spirit be ours both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.